when it comes to communicating under uncertainty, without knowing the definite way forward, with communication under uncertainty, more is more. So it's not true to say less is more, or if you're not completely sure about something, you'd rather like keep it to yourself. Because as I was listening to you, I heard that effectively communicating that we don't know is a communication. This is the strategy behind with Adam Cox, Yuta Tobias Mortlock and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind leading through uncertainty. What does it take to thrive in times of heightened ambiguity and complexity? As a starting point for uncertainty, I don't know, there's so much certainty going around. I think a good place to probably start is very much from a personal human perspective, given the fact that, you know, there's people running around trying to make sense of everything. They've got so many different personal and professional kind of expectations coming in. I think, at least I'm hearing from some of the conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks, do I lead with uncertainty in relation to how it's being perceived, like if I'm running a company or even a country or whatever it happens to be, do I show that I have certainty and I try to lead people out because that's what people want? Or do I open up and be like, hey, I'm one of you. I'm as human as the next person. And this is an uncertain time. So we need to kind of assess what what a sensible way is to approach it. Like, I'd love to hear what you're seeing and how you think about What's the right way to even start to think about uncertainty? Well, from from my perspective, there's there are certain things in life that you can be certain about or that are in your control, and there's an awful lot that's outside. We typically, I think in the Western world, have engineered out a lot of uncertainty. We kind of go to the point where we where we create jobs for for life. We create we get rid of as much uncertainty as we can. Yet the reality is, is that none of those things that we actually believe are certain, are certain. Uh, You just look at the financial system. Everything that we buy is based off the belief that a number now in a a bank account or a coin is going to have some value in a shop. Actually, the the, the numbers in a bank account are, are useless. They're just digits. But we have a belief that they have value and therefore they do have value because we believe in them. So I think that the, that the only thing we can now be certain of is people and their behaviour. And so if you can show a level of authenticity through this and say, hey, look, we don't know what's going on, but we never do. We only ever do our best to control the external environment as much as we can. But you can be sure that we're going to try to do behave in these ways. And for me, that for me, that seems to be a good starting point to to look at what people can control and give them something that they can believe in, but not promise too much. Because, of course, if you can't keep up to those promises, then that's a huge betrayal of trust. Mm. So it's very much leading with expectation. Yeah. I was going to say, is it expectation or is it just authenticity? It's about something being able to show who you are through this. It's about being able to show you that people, the beliefs that and the 
the the way that you're going to operate through this crisis and then maybe that is expectation yeah yeah i i have, I have a thought that's ringing through my head that i had a a, a very a very dear friend and senior strategist um in, in, in a very large company who is a firm believer of the sentence certainty is the greatest myth of the 20th century um there's that you know nothing is certain and approaching all things through that lens therefore it's just how it is you know when something uncertain happens you shouldn't be surprised because all things are uncertain you know it's this kind of challenge between uncertainty and unpredictability the certainty and predictability are two fundamentally very different things and when you see people kind of coming forward and trying to make sense of what it is they're looking for certainty but is it not a circumstance where really they should be looking to improve their relationship with with uncertainty as opposed to try to get that uncertainty and control it? Like, it's just, you know, do I need to fix myself in the circumstances or should I be running out trying to fix what I believe is uncertain? Hmm. I would like to, I like that. And I would like to almost back back pedal a little bit more because I think, um, not only I think, but we could think about uncertainty within ourselves, right? We could think about uncertainty in the space between me and you, interpersonal. We could think about uncertainty impacting us as a group, like, and and then there might be an even bigger phenomenon of uncertainty. And so, what you were just saying, Matt uh, Adam, about our relationship with, I think our relationship with uncertainty applies at all these levels, like me with myself. I have um, within me uncertainty and we could ratchet this up. And what I find really interesting about the pandemic right now is that um, the news are talking about what's going on at a, you know, biological, psychological, interpersonal, societal, geopolitical level. And maybe for the first time, we're actually talking about biological things affecting all sorts of outcomes um because this you know this virus is something that's inside a, a body but it's also deeply social and collective and so maybe maybe we could explore what uncertainty means in all these different layers levels fears of inf influence yeah and when you talk about the different layers like one way to look at it is, you know, in the terms of the the layered levels of crisis. You know, you have a biological crisis that's creating a financial crisis in a environmental climate crisis. So the pressure is on, and there is this compound effect. You know, it kind of comes back to: should we be thinking about not making sense of uncertainty, or try to provide? you know, provide a response in relation to uncertain times and just focus back on the things we actually can control and call out the things we can't control. At least I've seen that in a couple of press releases from different companies going, look, here are the controllables, here are the uncontrollables. This is the impact. Here's where we were this time last year. Here's where we are this time this year. I think it was the CEO of, of Marriott Hotels came out and, and you know, uh, it's probably one of the better announcements, kind of COVID announcements I've seen, which is, 
you know, this is the impact that we had during SARS. This is the impact we had during 9-11. This is the impact now, and it's significantly larger. However, there are things that we can control. So let's focus on them. And certainty came from that kind of focus on the controllable. And then that led to that expectation. Well, if this is what we need to do to respond, okay, we need to furlough people. We need to you know, shrink to profitability. We need to do whatever we need to do. But it's, are we dealing with the uncertainty or are we just focusing on the things that are controllable? I don't know if control, focusing on the controllable really solves the problem. I'd like to throw the, the ball back to Matt because between uncertainty and control sits what you said, Matt, authenticity. You were talking about authenticity. And I think that could be something to anchor ourselves a little bit. What were you thinking? Well, it kind of brings me back to, to one of Victor Frankl's quotes. Um, and I'm probably going to misquote him a little bit here. But he says that when you can no longer sort of impact your surroundings, you know, focus on changing yourself. And there's an awful lot of the external out there that we can't control anymore. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of CEOs, a lot of strategists, business people, we're going to launch this new product. We create a business plan. We, we try to predict the future and we actually hold ourselves accountable for meeting those targets. You know, it doesn't matter how many assumptions you make and how rigorous they are. At the end of the day, you're trying to put together a business plan to meet something. Wall Street is constantly based off what is the visibility of my sales pipeline? What new products are we going to bring in? Therefore, what is my sales guidance? You know, COVID has taken all of that and thrown it out the window. It's sort of set it on fire first. We have to be authentic here that there is a problem and that we aren't in control, that we in the control, you know, we no longer have the control over those business plans that we thought we had, but we still have control over who we are and how we respond. And I think what people want to see is leaders they can believe in that would follow through and do what they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really, I think, the crux of it. So it's about being authentic in admitting that we no longer are in control. But as you said, you know, the CEO of the Marriott saying, these are things that we can control. So let's focus on those. And it's interesting when you look at the controllable things and whether that actually provides certainty or not. Like you look at some of the stimulus packages that governments have come out with in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, some have been a pittance, some have been incredibly impressive. Uh, some have been completely butchered. It's a circumstance where even from a social perspective and the relationship between citizens and governments, there is an expectation to your point, Matt, about, looking at the delta between what you say and what you do and it's this you know uh it, it, it's this gap um i remember i i heard the sentence um the enemy the enemy of authenticity is incongruence so if you're looking to be authentic do what you know say what you mean mean what you say and when you get that difference in that that will wear authenticity down. It will start to, like, you know, the drip on the rock, it'll wear it down. If you're losing authenticity, it's incredibly difficult to get it back. I'd like to pick you up on <clears throat> on authenticity being, you know, be what you say and 
say what you do. Um, I don't think you need to blurb everything that's going on for you out in order to be authentic. I think authenticity can be a private process, but it's a lot to do with awareness. Self-disclosure is I share with you what's going on for me. Appropriate sometimes, sometimes less so. Authenticity, always appropriate. Being aware of what's going on for me, or maybe even being aware of how I come across to you, and perhaps then choosing to share or not share, I think is what we're, what we're talking about, what's really useful. Mm. But I'm not certain that everybody needs to, in this time, disclose um, everything that's going on because a lot of the stuff is heightened right now. And so yeah. I have already had a whole roller coaster of feelings and impulses and urges that if I had put them into the public domain, I would probably have regretted a number of those already. Yeah. Um, for me, another word came up when you were speaking, Adam, trust. Because I think if we're saying uncertainty is normal, and, we, and uncertainty is, is the new normal and even more heightened the new normal now. Maybe now it's just more in our face that uncertainty is reality. Then can we develop trust a little bit more? Trust in um, the intuitions and, and the internal things that are going on for ourselves. And maybe even being aware of how much trust there is between people. And how much trust there might be or there, there needs to be at a, at a bigger level. Because that's something that we can change and manipulate. And that's something I can see small amounts right now and big amounts. Does that make any sense? You know, around yeah. right now, I could categorize what's going on in the world depending on how much trust people have in options, approaches, proposals, possibilities right now to, yeah. to guide the future. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, I think it's Rachel Botsman at Oxford has done a lot of writing in relation to trust and particularly trust in the digital age and what it actually means to foster trust online and, and these sort of things. So there's also that next layer of complexity. A lot of people at least what I've seen, trust is built through that very personal, interpersonal relationship. You know, you sit down over a table, you lean in and you're like, okay, this is the problem. These are our options. You know, you get that FaceTime, you get that, you know, you see the whites of their eyes. And then that comes down to the value of communication, how trust is built. Trust is earned. It's not given. So the next layer of complexity is how do you promulgate trust? in a circumstance where most people are going to be like us sitting behind our screens, having a conversation as opposed to doing it in the one room. And historically, at least in a lot of parts of technology and digital, where there is human interaction with the machines, um, there has been a pretty healthy dose of proven mistrust. So uh, it's interesting. I'm just kind of trying to reconcile the delivery method versus the objective and go, can trust even be built? Particularly on something so important as, you know, the level of uncertainty and ambiguity we're dealing with now, 
how do you build trust? You know, do you just kind of point to the things you have done and be like, well, these are the right things. I am a trustworthy person. And you have to go out and sell trust to your team, to your to your managers, to your organization, to your citizens. Like, like what is the right way to demonstrate the relevant things that feed into being trustworthy? Right. I think it's such an interesting thing because I think um, talking directly about trust is just as ineffective as talking directly about respect and yeah. You know, and 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 almost love unless you're in like a romantic relationship with somebody, right? Um, so when you when you were talking, that reminded me of Axelrod, you know, the management science in in the eighties talked about the trust problem. And so the way we indirectly assess whether somebody's trustworthy is we we assess you know the costs and the risks associated. Um, with engaging with them, right? And so we are detecting whether they are friend or foe. And declaring I'm your friend typically makes people actually, you know, more distrusting. But you can actually detect people's pro-social, friendly motivation, even through virtual screens, right? Because you can still detect, you know, um, how people say things. You can still glean intent, even though you don't see the full body of them. The way you build trust as well in you know classic trust building literature is you you check how similar you are with each other right uh, do we have the same values do we have the same kind of kind of causal maps or cognitive structures uh, you know if I say something you will also think a causes b and a is right b is wrong right um, and I think the last thing is that builds trust is reciprocity so to what extent do when I say something, do I get something back from you? That's again cost and benefits. So the first bit is about risks and return, maybe openness. And the second bit is about am I am I sure that if I hand something out to you, it gets returned? And that builds trust. And I think we can do this, but we can't do it directly, right? We can't just say, if I if I am now um telling you something useful. I expect that you also give me back something useful. So it's it's more subtle than than the way I make it sound right now, but it's possible to do. Well, it's interesting when you're talking about giving things away for free. Um, in that, coming from the, the you know, especially the technical marketing world, yeah, you know, the world of content marketing has been here for a long time now, and the whole ethos behind giving something away for free it sits in content marketing so you're trying to give away something valuable um, some valuable knowledge some valuable information for free typically in the form of written or, or, or recorded content like this and at some point you might get to say hey we've created this ebook or whatever it is if you've learned to trust us through engaging with us through these channels you know, maybe you could give us your your name and email address so we can send this to you um, and then over time, maybe you build more trust, um, you know, but the whole, you know, the whole part of content marketing goes back years and years. And probably the best example uh, is the Michelin Guide, which came out many, many years ago when when Michelin decided that people weren't driving their cars enough. And the reason they weren't driving their cars very far was because one, because of reliability um, and two was because they didn't know where to go and stay and they didn't know where to go and eat. So if you could reduce some of the uncertainty in those times of, right, say, here's some good places, here's some good hotels, 
here's some good restaurants to go and eat in, you reduce the uncertainty of taking a trip in the car. And so you might actually go and drive further. And, you know, that's been about, you know, there's a, there's a whole host of, you know, online digital marketing where really what you're trying to do is to get people to experience what it's like to be a customer before you've ever paid anything, before you're a customer, so that the decision becomes very, very easy. It's perhaps easier in a consumer world than it is in a business-to-business world where buying decisions are much more complex. There's a lot, they're a lot longer, there's more people involved. But ultimately what you're trying to do is to give people a sense of what is it going to be like to be in business together, to, to do business together, to have this product in my hands or to be using the service. And so it's it comes back to what you've both been saying about trust really as well, which is trust me on my actions and not what I'm saying. If you say, if you put up on a website, hey, we're the best at this, everybody says that. Yeah, that's right. If all of a actions. sudden... If all of a sudden I've got, you know, um, not only am I writing about stuff being uh, credibly useful somewhere, but I've got the press writing about me and, you know, whatever. All of a sudden, then that shows credibility. That shows that you can trust, you know, you can trust that opinion. In an indirect way. I love that, Matt, because it's what came up for me was actions speak louder than words. And you gave me a perfect example for the three components of trust building, and we are, we're talking about trust building because we're, we're talking about uncertainty reduction, right? So the first is by giving away something for free on the internet or even by giving the Michelin guides for, for free, you're showing people about who you are and what your motivation is, right? You are showing people that you are similar in values and that you have the similar interests in, to them, and you're starting the reciprocity cycle, right? And the other thing that I thought this, as you were speaking, that this related to was the authenticity debate, because effectively by giving something away for free, you're also showing a bit of vulnerability of, you know, what you value. It's like, and so in, yeah. in psychology, we call this like a vul vulnerability lead. Like, you know, I'm, and in, when I talk to people, I always lift my, my, my t-shirt a little bit, not to show my naked belly, but like, you know, when you're showing a bit of yourself, that's real. Mm. You're inviting people to give you something back. And so I actually think this is a really practical example of building trust in the interest of reducing uncertainty, what you were just saying. What other examples are there in the world of mm. marketing? Well, this, this, I mean, strategy. I mean, there's so many, but there's probably one on a very personal level that just instantly comes to mind was um, moving into a new house. Um, I was renting a house, a uh, very nice landlord. So I, I was in Ickenham, which is just out, sort of just within London, within sort of the the Uxbridge and Hillingdon area, where our where the UK Prime Minister is then MP four, and the, uh, the our landlords didn't just leave us, uh, you know, a little note to say welcome or whatever it was, you know, but there was a little basket. It had a bottle of wine, some bread, some some tea bags, you know, a pint of milk, enough to keep us going. But then they also gave us. A recommendation for a couple of uh, takeaway places that they liked going to um, and you know kind of which are the best shops to go to for food you know so don't bother going to this one down the road because it's always busy this one around the corner is better so there was just kind of some helpful hints as to 
what we've learned about, you know, while we've lived here, these might be helpful for you. And, you know, throughout that relationship, it was a very trusting relationship. Obviously, we were living in their old house. And so for them to give us something that probably cost them 10, 15 pounds, not a lot, a little bit of effort. It set the whole tone for that relationship. Um, and even though we were paying to live in the house, it changed the tone of the relationship because, of course, you pay to a letting agent and, and everything else. So I think that's a nice example of just another way that you can build that trust. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting. I'm I'm hearing the contributing factors into building trust. Positive intent, value add, somewhat sometimes expecting nothing in return. Vulnerability, I've heard. It's 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 almost this leading with kindness mm-hmm. approach. I was just thinking that too, Adam. That's yeah. funny. And again, like particularly in recent times, you know, I've probably done a hundred, a hundred and fifty uh, you know, video cons in the last four weeks. Um, no one has worn a tie. Kids are running in the background. The cat walks over the keyboard, irrespective of rank file, what's on the, on the business card. And people have become much more human, like much, much more human. Like no one I know has dressed up for a video con. They might have gotten out of their jammies, but they haven't kind of suit and tied it and, 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 you know, and kind of really put a corporate way forward or a very professional thing. They're still professional as people, but they're more human now. And I think that as that kind of the facade has started to fall, given the new mode of communication and how people are adapting to uncertainty, there is a beautiful opportunity here. I think to, you know, think about, you know, the leading with kindness, think about, uh, you know, value creation, not value extraction. Um, be more empathetic. It's more of that human connection. And particularly given, and maybe this kind of feeds into that, how to connect and create trust in these times. It's about, but I, I really like the vulnerability point. I like it. And I also, and I know there's something more yet that I haven't gotten to in it. The you know what does it mean to be vulnerable now in in a circumstance of leadership some people may perceive it as weakness but we're in different mm-hmm. times where messages you know it's not what you say it's how you're heard and I think the communication and what's being heard is somewhat different like if you look at Jacinda Arden like her communication style is lead with kindness through and through and she's she's won the planet's heart not just New Zealanders like. Everyone wants to be a New Zealander at a moment, given the leadership style. And when I look at, you know, it's, it's, there's a degree of vulnerability there, but there's also brutal honesty. And this is where to the point, if I go back, there are certain times where you don't need to disclose everything. But if I look at that as a communication style and how to kind of get people on side, she's almost proposing to, you know, the citizens of her country, look, um, there's so much we can do. And there's also a save yourselves component here as well. And that's incredibly powerful. Is she showing vulnerability or is she disclosing too much as a leader? I Mm -hmm. haven't really worked that out yet, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely built trust, whatever she's doing, whatever that combination of things is, is is the trust is lunging forward. It's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of two things as I'm listening to you first, um, the bit about, you know, the decision 
to disclose or not to disclose. And for me, the German word for trust and confidence comes in. And, and the second bit is, is about confidence. But so the German word for self-trust is um, it's all about um, safety. So it's Selbstsicherheit. So it means you're feeling safe within yourself to be confident. And I love, you know, of course, I would say that, right? I love the German language for its literalness. But so trust in yourself has a lot to do with feeling safe that nothing bad is going to happen to you. And um, a wonderful definition of confidence that I recently read, um, director of the Advanced Leadership Institute in Harvard, I forget what her name is, said, confidence is not me being so strong, me being so confident in the traditional sense, but me being optimistic that things will turn out okay. And so that, I think, comes back to feeling safe. You know, I'm feeling safe. I feel safe in front of you two. I feel safe, psychologically safe, that you're not going to figuratively swipe me or, you know, give me an, like, uh, addressing down. Um, and I feel safe that things will turn out okay. And maybe that's the thing that tips you to make the right decision about what vulnerability is acceptable and appropriate in the moment. And that should help. And that's helping leadership mm. to be confident that things will turn out okay. Because I'm feeling safe in the environment that I'm in. And then we could talk all about we could talk a lot about psychological safety yeah, and how that plays into the debate, I think, right now as well. Mm. I'm a huge fan, of course, of psychological safety. Yeah. And I, I, it, it's interesting to think that through, to create that optimism, mm -hmm. to truly create optimism that is believable in yourself. Do you need to have an a, a awareness of what it's not okay looks like so you can actually balance it and you don't then kind of fall into this kind of fluffy thing like yeah we're all being spoon-fed joy and happiness and rainbows when really you know it can all come crashing down i think what is what, what are the critical factors to create believable optimism well i mean i think one of the things that i saw from jacinda adern which i was really um surprised about um is not just you know the approach she's taken it's the way that she's communicating. So, and I don't just mean the necessarily the, the words she's using. It's the fact that she'll go onto a Facebook live. She will meet people where they are. She's going, you know, she's meeting them on the, on the channels that they're using to communicate with other people. Now, this isn't a TV broadcast. A lot of the communication she's doing, she's doing Facebook lives from her living room, wearing a green sweatshirt, She's talking comfortably, knowledgeably, showing a little bit of discomfort as well as she's talking about the situation they're in. Um, so she's showing that she's one of the herd as much as anything else. But she just happens to be in a position where she has to make decisions to help them. And so I think for me, that's one of the really interesting things about where she's, how she's positioned herself, which is as one of the people for the people of the people, um, which is very different from some of the other leadership styles around the world, which, is, which isn't so much of, you know, becomes more of an us and them approach. 
so I think that that's been for me one of the was this you know I, I watched that some of those videos this morning and was just struck by how much she let you into her home but she didn't give you anything about the f the uncertainty of the approach there was no conversation about letting people into the the ifs and what's of the science it was this is the respected wisdom this is what we're following this is what we're doing and i know it's uncomfortable and i think it's that that's where the the authenticity kind of barrier goes in and let's face it scientists and i speak as having been a chemist for for many years we build up you know we try and scratch what is uncertain we try and scratch the edges of, of of uncertainty of what we don't know about the universe we don't know a lot about this virus still there's still a lot of uncertainty and despite there being hundreds of or thousands of papers being published in the last three and a half months i mean i think it's like twenty five thousand academic journals that or papers that that cover covid in three and a half months uh, now that's not all biological some of those are you know, management publications and, you know, that's a Google Scholar search, so it's not necessarily a definitive list. But you, you see that there are just a huge amount of interest in this, and yet we still don't have the answers as to what this virus, how it really responds in the body. We know we know its genetic sequence. We know that there are at least 30 strains of the thing. We know that it's it targets a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. We know that those are prevalent in in the nose in the eyes in the you know in the throat and that's how the virus gets in the body we don't really know a lot about necessarily how it spreads the asymptom you know the role of asymptomatic people there's so much that we do know and yet there's so much we don't know so a lot of the response is still guesswork and it's very easy to you know i think scientists have a habit uh, certainly i did that you will pick the models that help you that, that help you then build a solid foundation upon to continue scratching the surface of what's unknown. Mm. Um, I think because we're doing the same with policy responses. That's fascinating because there is also, from a human perspective, in many people, a natural bias to focus on the negative, where the picture you've just painted is positive reinforcement of what is known to build the body of knowledge to understand what is unknown better and then kind of chip your way into the unknown, converting it you know, bit by bit into knowledge and turning it into, an, in, into a, known, a known quantity. But in the same token, there's this, you know, and, and maybe this is why the scientific community is holding so much credibility at this moment. Everyone in the world, all leaders are going, yep, the science, or all leaders worth their salt are kind of going, the science. And we'll lead with that and we'll build policy around that and we'll make good decisions around that because there is some kind of definitiveness in relation to at least how a lot of people see the scientific discipline, you know, research, evidence, rigor, peer review, like all the good things that kind of build a sound body of work as opposed to, uh, this is what I think, you know, what was the Donald Trump quote a couple of days ago? Um, uh, we're, we're going to release Pete. We're going to you know, lift the ban and it's going to be great. What sort of data are we going to use? And he goes, the data here. And you can just hear everyone in the press room go, oh my God. Um, and it's, you know, there's different styles for different audiences. Neither is less right or wrong, depending on what you believe, because it's all subjective. And this kind of brings in 
uh, the the Jacinda effect as well, which is, do you need to come down a hierarchical structure to build authenticity? Can you be the top of the chain still beating your chest going, look, I run this show. Here is an authentic teaspoon of authenticity. Take it, believe me, and try to build trust to bring certainty to the uncertain. I'd like to riff off this, and I'm and I'm I'm playing ball here. I'm I'm on the way to hand the ball to Matt and to communication strategy. On the way, I'd like to talk about how hardwired we are to receive information, because you've said, you know, the science has the ear of the world right now. I'm not completely sure it does, um, because let's just review: what are we wired for? What are we hardwired for? We're hardwired for sensational negative information, right? We're hardwired and we're the survivors of people who are focused on negative risk-like related information. And we've been, uh, we're the descendants of people who've been good at focusing on risk and avoiding risk. And so we are we're glued to and automatically attracted to information that's like about harm, damage, and negative. And the more sensational, the better, because it used to be even more important for survival. But we're also wired for novelty and for social connection. So we're hardwired to um, to click on the email that pops up, because it could be from a human, right? So like social media is so addictive because it's about other people. And we love novelty. We love to be interrupted in the flow of what we're doing and to check whether the email or the text is a bit more interesting than what we're doing right now. So I'm passing the ball back to Matt and say, what does this mean for how we should communicate and how maybe science should communicate? Because we're talking hardwiring for negativity, hardwired for extreme sensational information, but also hardwired for new interesting facts and for people-related facts. What should we do with that? So I think I would say that science should do what it's always done, which is to generate evidence and talk about the evidence and also the shortcomings of that evidence. You know, there is you know, a famous quote from Michael Gove during the Brexit conversation, we're tired of experts. I think there's still huge... There's huge swathes of the country of countries around the world who are tired of experts. They're tired of the scientists. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm grateful. I that feel my, hurt. Yeah, the, the 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 great. I'm grateful that my social media bubble doesn't generally focus like that. <laughs> but there are but there are interlopers into that bubble that do occasionally break into and 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 in that bubble they will say things that I'm sort of thinking. You know. One friend of mine sort of said, we'll be writing in the streets if we can't get back to work soon. I'm thinking, what? Who's saying that? And yet there's people agreeing that are, you know, at those intersection of bubbles, it's going on. And are they listening to the science or do they believe the science? No, they don't care. So I think there are groups of people that still care about this and there are groups that don't. And while I believe that the UK government has done a pretty good job of communicating what the, what we should be doing, at least what they believe we should be doing and whether the policy of lockdown is is good, whether we've gone too far, whether we should be going, you know, following a model like Sweden or whether we should be going further. 
I, I don't know. I'm uncertain about that. There, I still don't think that there's enough evidence and we won't know until until actually we come out the other side of this. But I think they've done a good enough job of communicating. Here's the science. Here's the human impact. Here's what we're seeing in the hospitals. Here's what we're trying to do to make sure the hospitals are well enough equipped. And they've had a huge issue at the moment about getting enough personal protective equipment to the frontline staff. Um, people have said things in press conferences or, or in front of the media that have said, oh, you know, we've got a shipment coming from Turkey. And then Turkey said, well, we haven't got an order. Now, who's somewhere down the line of communication, something's got broken. Um, I'm sure the person that said that um, said it in, you know, in the full belief that that's exactly what was happening. And so somebody along the line, you know, it's Chinese whispers effect, no doubt, that, that something along the line of communication has broken down. But I think that as you've seen, sort of as we've gone in sort of four or five weeks into this, that's where you start seeing the cracks happening in communication strategy, where at the start of this, people were very much behind government policy and now people are attacking it. I'd like and to... people are trying to pick holes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm interrupting, Matt, forgive me, um, because I want to take stock of something that I heard while you were talking. Um, and I think that's really useful and really practical. Um, when it comes to communicating under uncertainty, without knowing the definite may forward, um, with communication under uncertainty, more is more. So it's not true to say less is more, or if you're not completely sure about something, you'd rather like keep it to yourself. Because as I was listening to you, I heard that effectively communicating that we don't know is a communication. And it actually reminded me of how my psychology department was talking about what was going on at my university. And um, I can't always say that psychologists are perfect at at applying the theories that they know, but we had probably five or six emails a day or communications of some sort that continued to tell us that the leadership team was thinking about what they were doing. They were not talk, talking about decisions. They were not talking about outcomes, but they were talking about what was going on. And that was incredibly reassuring because again, I think we're talking about how do you handle uncertainty and how do you get assuredness, trust, reassurance. So the practical takeaway that I'm now taking from you is um, when it comes to communicating under uncertainty, my impulse to say less is more is not right. More is more. More is good. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. I think you brought up something there that was really that really hit home for me, which is actually by saying these are the things that we're considering, these are the things that we're discussing, um, it means it shows that people are walking in your shoes, maybe, if those are if those are um, items or, or topics that you're particularly passionate or care about. 
And so even if the end decision doesn't match where you think that they should go, at least you know that some of those topics have been considered. I think decision-making in a vacuum, when it's a black box decision, and people go, well, how did you get there? That's really hard. A hundred percent. Like having that full disclosure of these are the things that we're thinking, this is the decision we've taken, and why equally as important, these are the things that we have decided not to do and why, Mm. will start to disarm that doubt either in yourself or in the naysayers that you speak to. I think that is incredibly important because what's happening to a point that you mentioned earlier, Matt, you know, there is a saturation point, I think, that people get to when they're listening to either the science or the policy or the government or the leaders or the executives or whoever it happens to be. Now, even more than we were before this, is we are more globally interconnected when it comes to the voice, the information, the opinion, the, you know, the lines of logic, these sort of things. So I think what I'd like to explore a little bit is the idea of how do you build trust in a noisy world, how do you build that authoritative, you know, being authoritative is too hard, but having the credibility to be the authoritative voice of reason, logic, process, instruction, whatever it happens to be, and then how that feeds into trust. You're talking, see, you haven't thought. I love it. Um, I'm riffing off you because I very much like us unpacking that black box of whatever decision we will then have to live by, you know, week, next week, next month. And when you were talking about, you know, disclosing what we are thinking about, I was thinking about fairness because I'm not sure we can, I'm willing to give the leaders in my country um, and, and in the global scene the respect to take them as authority, but I can respect their decision-making process um, by them fairly outlining to me what the process is um, of which options they've discounted on. And that reminded me of, there's a literature on fairness, and there's two types of fairness in social psychology, right? So people think fairness is distributive. So that means it's fair what I end up getting. You know, it's is it fair that I speak one third of the time on this call? That's distributive justice. But there's another type of justice that's actually much more satisfying when I get it, and that's procedural justice. So me agreeing with the process of how the decision or how the outcome came about is actually more satisfying than me getting 30% of airtime. Because if I know what the criteria are that should decide who should speak next or who should speak the most in here, and I buy into that values framework or that, you know, that cognitive map or that causal mapping relationship of I say A causes B, um, one is better than two, then I will buy into and I will respect the authority of the decision-making process. So, so it's so now let's let's talk about. We're saying communication, talk, disclosing what's going on is useful, and then maybe be even more specific and say, um, talking about how I make decisions is helpful in this day and age. Talking yeah, about the process of decision-making. If everyone understands 
how things roll forward from a process perspective. And that process is clearly articulated, sound, robust, and it's avoiding all, you know, group think, you know, all the wonderful biases and you know, things that kind of often rear their head in important decision-making discussions. Then, you know, there, there is, there is what you're doing, actually, what you're doing is you're increasing the, the trust quotient. Because if you have a robust decision-making process, irrespective of the outcome, you trust that the decision being made is correct because the process is robust. You have a stopgap where you're going to get, you get to a point, you go, okay, hang on. If we're going to do this, what is the negative business case of not doing this? Let's inverse it because for, you know, for the positive to be true, the inverse negative mm -hmm. also must be true. And it, and it's, and it's having those sort of things and explain that to be like, look, yeah, uncertainty, but you know, we have a process that stacks here and then I would we like feed these things in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go. Sorry, Adam. No, you're right. Go for it. Um, you were saying, you know, if I have a sound process, then I increase the trust amongst the people that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm serving effectively. And I'm saying we don't need to be that ambitious. I'm almost thinking a little bit about advocacy versus inquiry. And because the, the, the respect and the openness that I think is achieved when we talk about our approach, you know, and the decision-making criteria that we are using, we're actually giving people the respect to share, to be authentic about how we're doing things. And so uh, in a complete, I can think of at least one world leader who is completely at the opposite end of that spectrum, um, but we almost are inviting people to maybe give us feedback. So, you, you know, you don't even have to have a perfect process to be trusted. But what we might want to invite is for people to understand the, what, the way we reason about what's going on. And if we are confident and feeling safe in ourselves in that communication, we might actually learn something that we hadn't considered and the solution will be better in the long run. That's why I'm, I'm talking about, yeah. you know, we don't need to be advocates. We don't need to sell our approach. We might want to share our approach and invite comments. If we are interested more in the product, the, the ultimate outcome, than in how we look. Yeah. And I, I think that's, speaks precisely to when I was referring to, you know, you know, the United States president going, mm. you know, the data's in here and you just like, I'm, I'm not having a go at him. Yeah. Well, I may or may not be. That's kind of circumstantial. What I am having a go is at the process because yeah. this is bullshit. Um, like, you know, and this is like need to know basis. Like you don't need yeah. to know how I've come up with the decision. Yes, and I that, do need to know. How do you, how do you build trust with that? Exactly. You physically that's can't. The so therefore by, by, you know, by doing things like that, I believe they're the behaviors and the demonstration of the processes that, you know, leaders of businesses, countries, whoever lean on when they double down on that. I think the uncertainty increases, which is worse for confidence, worse for markets, mm -hmm. creates more confusion, blah, blah, blah. So I think there is definitely a point to be made in relation to disclosure of process in times of uncertainty. And even if the process is wrong, at least people understand why it's wrong as opposed to what the hell is going on.
and not having anything to grab onto. Obviously, you would like a process that is robust that helps you make better decisions. To bring that certainty, to you know, increase that trust, to demonstrate that authenticity, to give guidance to kind of the decisions that you make and then how other people need to act in relation to those decisions, whether it's executing them, following particular guidelines, whatever. But the process element and disclosing that process, I think, is probably a good takeaway to start to work towards how do we deal with times of uncertainty, admitting we don't know all the answers, disclosure of process. But I still, I still would like to go back for, for a moment um, from a conversation we were having maybe five or ten minutes ago in relation to the authenticity of those who are being asked to lead and hierarchy. We mentioned how some people are coming down to you know the citizens level, coming down to the shop floor level, coming down to the voters level, and they're like, look, you know, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm doing a Facebook live on my couch, and I happen to lead a country. Is that a critical part of building authenticity in a time of crisis? Can you actually still hold a position of hierarchy and build trust? I'm not too sure. What are you What are you thinking on this, Matt? Well, so I mean, if we take it back to you know why do hierarchies exist? Um, is probably one of the most fundamental psychological reasons as to why society exists. And the reality is, is that as we evolved as a species, we decided that it would be good to have somebody that we put, that we that we outsourced some of the decision making to. Um, you know, so we outsourced the really. You know, typically that was to the the strongest biggest male in the in the pack that was able to go and take down the biggest prey or to defend the tribe as much as possible that was how we outsourced power um and that was how we outsourced decision making processes you know over time that has has obviously evolved and you don't find i don't think there are any examples of the world's strongest man ever being the leader of a country uh there are very few examples of boxers going into politics there's one in particular yeah but what you do find yeah yeah (laughs) but what you do find is um power shifted so powers become more money-based than physical based um and you've also got that uh, class kind of power as well in in many countries still where some of the old classes still have an element of power so um i i think what's happened is is that you've got you know, in this time of crisis where everybody has been put on a similar level to an extent. So the celebrities are still having to do what the celebrities do. And, you know, there was an interview on BBC News the other morning where Martin Clunes uh, was on his sofa with his dogs in his pyjamas. I thought it was very funny. I mean, I know he's a comedian, but it was a it was a very nice touch, a very humanising touch. So has it. But does that mean that you can it reduces the impact of authority? I think it reduces the impact of authoritarianism in that it's much harder for me to, to, to demand what you do because, Hey, if you're already, you know, if you're already staying at home, it's much harder to to do that. Um, You have to, you have to lead by consensus more, you know, so you're, it's, it's interesting across Europe there, you know, I believe Spain and Italy and France are issuing 
huge numbers of tickets to people, being very, very controlling of their societies. I've got a friend of mine who lives in Cyprus um, who, to go to the shops, has to send a text message to get permission to, to leave the house. Um, in the UK, it's far more laissez-faire. We are advised. Um, yes, we have a lockdown and certain things are closed. But actually, a lot of this is done by consensus. You know, I haven't seen any police. You know, I go out running and the police aren't stopping me saying, hey, was that your second time out today? So I think there's an awful lot of this where, yes, if you're in a park and you're congregating, they're going to ask you to disperse. But a lot of a lot of the, the leadership in the UK has been done through consensus. You see that even more so in Sweden, where people are being advised to stay at home and asked to. But the shops are still open. But is consensus a reflection of leadership? Like if you look what's happening in Japan, you look what's like, you know, where, you know, stay at home, people are staying at home. You look what's happening at Brazil. This whole thing is a scam. Everyone's out on the streets. Like how much is there this to go back to earlier, the reciprocity of if I do hold authority and I give a particular instruction, I get it back. It's kind of a command and control because re- I've kind of got this in one hand. In the other hand, I'm thinking about, well, what about in organizations where hierarchy is built in the caste system in some of the South, in, in, in some of the South Asian countries, um, you know, uh, social economic barriers, um, places where there is kind of, you know, a, a lower influence over kind of rule of law where it's, you know, it's, it's all of these different other hierarchies. I saw a great story out of South Africa, two rival gangs, um, in, in, in a given settlement and, uh, you know, put down the weapons. They've been fighting each other. They don't know why now for, you know, 15, 20 years. And, you know, they're distributing food and water and masks and doing all these amazing things. And the interviewers, they're going, okay, so is this going to continue when this is over? And they're both like, probably not. Like, interesting. So are we just pushing hierarchy to the side for a greater cause? If that is the case, then society and the people in that situation are vulnerable and the leaders are picking up on that and they're acting accordingly and the people are following them. So again, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's not a do as I say, not as I do, but it's the authenticity of, you know, this is what must be done. Watch me. And then society or, you know, uh, organizations or teams or whatever reflect the leader because they're actually living the certainty that they wish to become. Although the certainty that, that that they wish to produce, almost they're living in a reality that is attractive in a different way. I'm listening as you were talking, as both of you were talking just now. I was thinking about um, what drives power, and what are different types of power. And so, authority is one type of power that you can have. Being an expert, <laughs> if the world believes that you know that you're an expert, it's a source of power. And but it's you could almost categorize different types of power according to how traditional and maybe how you know like in what Matt you were saying earlier like how we've evolved um, how traditional is how traditionally is the power distributed so the most traditional way of having power is your ability to punish or reward people right so I have the power to put you in jail or I have the power to give you money as a you know even a corporate don. Um, so rewards and punishment, uh, and then maybe a bit more evolved is I'm 
you give me power because I'm an expert or I have authority over a certain area of expertise. But more and more, more and more evolved societies have different types of power. And that's the influence that people have. The attractiveness, that's not necessarily physical attractiveness, but um, so in, in social science, right? So these new types of power are how likable are you? How similar are you? Or how do I perceive that you are similar? And so uh, we could laugh a little bit or joke around the fact that many Americans who voted for Trump believe that Trump and his family were very similar to their families. Debatable, perhaps, to some of us. But so that's, so the attractiveness comes out of perceived similarity. It comes out of perceived likability. It comes out of perceived influence. And then... Um, maybe it's this um, these leaders in in countries where they have moral authority or where they live a life according to which I want to live. I um, I respect Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel. She did a brilliant speech a few weeks ago, inviting and urging people to do the right thing, and. By appealing to a German solidaric soul to do the right thing, you don't need a police officer. You don't need fines. Germans are obeying to do the right thing because it's the act of solidarity. You're saving lives by being at home. It's an act of love. And so I give her power because I like her. I respect her. She has influence over me. How does that speak to what we were just talking about, Adam, in Mm. terms of... How do leaders, how can leaders use the right type of power to be effective in this day and age? And maybe this is the time and age where traditional power is losing some of its attractiveness. Matt? I mean, has it changed? Because actually, if you look at a lot of, I think, of what we both said, um, a lot of this is through influence and it's through media and it's through uh, almost manipulation of the, the, the... the communication channels that are available. So there are very few social media influencers out there that are saying, no, this is all wrong. Uh, Most of the celebrities are at home. All of a sudden you've got the people on TV, uh, you know, many of the people on TV, you know, you've only got one person in the TV studio. You've got most of the social media influencers are at lockdown at home. So people are following, even if you don't care who, what your, you know, what the leader of your country says, you're following the people that that are following them. So it's kind of that. When, and when I say it's via consensus, it's because it's coming down that thing, uh, that chain of chain of influence. But what scares me a little bit um, and has scared me throughout is how easily we have locked down a country, how easily we have um, almost unquestioned not gone into work, not done things. And, you know, how easily the, the, the human being can be persuaded and, you know, turn to do something that they're, they're not used to doing. Um, and there's questions over whether a lockdown is the best, the best response to this. Um, and there's certainly a, a trade-off um, between 
saving lives from the virus and an economic downturn which will cost more lives due through to poverty depression job losses a whole host of economic arguments that i'm sure we don't have time to even scratch the surface of here but that's a very delicate balance as to how as to the tightrope you walk between them um but there might even be other you know evils that we that that can get through because of this sort of willingness to follow the herd and it's interesting that that whole follow the herd point is that is there a collective solidarity that everyone is in uncertainty at once and if you put that into a organizational structure if you put that into you know basically any structure where there's groups of people and you know and and, and different levels of hierarchy that you know, if I'm watching celebrities and celebrities are dealing with you know, all the things that you and I are dealing with today, again, it kind of goes back to it, it humanizes the circumstance. And if we can leverage that empathy and be transparent to, you know, to the right extent of, you know, this is the human face of, you know, me as a leader leading something, you know, leading a group of people through this uncertainty you almost get that band of brotherhood, sisterhood, sort of linking arms, mm. power in numbers effect. Precisely to your point, Matt, how has everyone just kind of flipped the switch and gone with the instruction? Because is, 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 this, is this a massive experiment in social proofing? I'm not too sure, but it kind of looks like it. Yeah, it I think like it's really it interesting um, that we are, we're buying effectively the messages from the social media influences that we relate to, that we aspire to, that we want to be influenced by. And we are following their advice, perhaps, and we're trusting their advice more than the leaders of the country that we happen to live in. And that reminds me of persuasion, theory of persuasion. Right? In social science, super simple distinction. Um, two paths to persuasion. Central route, that means you focus on the facts. You try to get your facts better than the opponent, and then you will be persuasive, or you persuade through the periphery. So facts don't matter as much as how you say them, who says them, whether you're wearing a white coat, whether there's a doctor title in front of your name for a specific audience. So the people then focus on the periphery of the information rather than what the doctor in the white coat actually says. And what you're just describing to me sounds like a sure example of the world moving towards being influenced and persuaded through the periphery. That means for leaders who want to influence and persuade in the way that 21st century people are actually, the, the action is actually driven because people are staying at home. And Matt, you're observing that the country, the countries are getting locked quite effectively without everywhere being police cars outside because they're persuaded by influencers. So that means leaders need to heed that advice. They need to know what peripheral, what signals from the messenger are more important than even the expertise, even the authority that they are actually giving to the world so that they can become more persuasive and more influential. This is the, the era of influencers social media, likability, and then the, the peer pressure and the social facilitation of, I'll do it because Adam is staying at home. 
look, Matt, Matt's showing me his home. He's staying at home, so I'll do the same. I don't question it. I just do it because I like you and I want to be like you. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that surprises me about the UK response, um, or I'd love to know about the UK response in particular, um, is many you know, quite a few years ago, um, the UK government under David Cameron introduced something called the Nudge Unit, which was based on right. behavioural economics. Um, so some of the work of some some brilliant um, psychologists that moved into you know economics, and you know fascinating work. And I know that that Nudge Unit has had some significant you know policy plays um, over time. It's had a huge impact on the way that people do things online, sell things online. And I am pretty confident that the way that things have been set up in this country follow some of those behavioral economic lessons. You know, you wait for, we maybe could have moved sooner, but we waited for news from the likes of Italy and Spain to come through. We had examples. We st As we started moving things through, the messaging was subtle at first. It slowly progressed. We eased into a lockdown. It wasn't overnight and bang. And I'm sure that there was some really interesting subtlety as we went, as we moved through those stages. And whether even a toilet paper shortage couldn't have been engineered just to show people how significant an issue this was. You know, what's the most inconsequential thing a country can run out of? toilet paper yeah, so exactly. let's make sure it's we don't funny. have it i'm sure yeah. it's just i'm sure it yeah. was just supply yeah. chains not coping with people thinking mm -hmm. hey i need toilet paper um but uh, some of these things that have happened i'm sure were subtly nudged to get us to respond in certain ways completely plausible because people ultimately in moments of crisis will react to herd behavior it takes a very strong-minded individual to kind of go, okay, the building's on fire. Is now the right time to run out? Why should I run out? Am I better jumping out the window? Am I better waiting and waiting for the fire? Like, you know, there's very rarely when the, when, you know, when the pressure's on. And that, that's an interesting thing as well, is that what does the impact of pressure play on how we interact with uncertainty, particularly when we're looking to people to provide us certainty in moments of crisis. As a leader, what do I need to demonstrate? And I, I think that's, this definitely, um, definitely talks to your point, Matt. It's absolutely clear that when we're under pressure, we contract, we become more parochial and conservative as opposed to when we're less under pressure, right? So even people's body postures under pressure are more conservative so from an evolutionary perspective we're the survivors of people who never took any risk who never took any chances in the face of stress they ran out of the building they didn't check to see where the opportunities were and we are the descendants of people who are the, the impulse is to go for the hills when there's pressure and when other people are running we start running because that's our wiring matt you had a comment uh, yeah it was just it was just more that you're sort of looking at the process and of course no countries really know what the next 18 months are going to look like. Um, people are talking about how do we exit lockdown? How do we do this? You know, how do you know, when do we go back you know, send the kids back to school? Um, what I've liked is that, that actually there are five tests. I think it is that the UK government has said the last one of those being 
incredibly difficult to even predict, which is there is no chance of a second, you know, pandemic wave. Um, so how can you, how can you, how can you, how can you therefore foresee lockdown stopping in the next six months if there's no chance of a second pandemic wave hitting? Yeah, well, there's an interesting study that I saw um, uh, come out of Gartner uh, recently. And full disclosure, I used to I used to work for a company that was acquired by Gartner. And the statistic was, is that they took a survey of CFOs and 42% of CFOs that were surveyed said they have absolutely no consideration of a second wave in any of their scenario planning. Now, me as a career strategist started screaming uncontrollably at the screen because this is just mind-bending insanity of Fortune 500 companies who who are in control of the books of these organizations, these huge multinationals, aren't thinking like... 101 stuff they, they they haven't stress tested their assumptions they like it's just i threw my hands there i'm like and this is what is wrong with the corporate world is that is it a circumstance it's a magnification of the peter principle where the more senior people become the more incompetent they become and this is just a reflection of that i have no idea i honestly thought people were smarter and i looked at the end size it's not huge but it's good enough to go, yeah, this is this is not acceptable at all, and these are people in position of leadership. Yeah, sure. And you, then you have to question the, you know, again, it goes back to authenticity and believability and trust. Yeah, yeah. And there's no there's no transparency into how they actually reached, you know, what is the decision making yeah. process that they reached to the point where we're, they're not considering this, and do we know why they're not considering this? Like it just opens up more questions, which I would imagine to most people would disprove their authenticity. So I see this as a brilliant poster child example of how not to do it. Um, I'm just, I, you know, I, I adore this example of what you're, what you're giving. And I agree that you don't have to be a world leading uh, global authority and strategy flying around the world like, like people like you do. So um, to, to say there could be a second wave, duh, it's possible. You, could, you should put this on your um, scenario planning map. And I would like to say all of us have experience of becoming dumber and less intelligent when we're under intense pressure. So let's let's put a little bit of an, another thing in, into this pot here. Um, we're talking about uncertainty. We're talking about uh, authenticity, influence, persuasion, communication. But let's also talk about stress and stress management. And so mm-hmm. it's very easy for me sitting in a locked down position as a non-key worker um, to judge the performance of people who are out there trying to make decisions, trying to lead the country forward. And I'm just talking about myself, Adam. I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm just saying that um, whenever we are under intense pressure, um, amygdala activated, limbic system pumping adrenaline cortisol out in order to fight, fright, uh, flee, or maybe freeze if there's too much of these neurotransmitters in our body. But then what happens in the brain, the first thing that goes is our hippocampus, our ability to me- remember important stuff. And that whenever you've been stressed getting out of the door, you remember that you couldn't find your keys. Um, so 
the memory is the first thing that goes. The other thing uh, that that goes very very quickly is um, forget what the, the the region in the brain is called. The region in the brain that allows you to see patterns and match them to other patterns that you've seen in the world. Yeah. So pattern recognition goes with stress. It gets deactivated because in a fight-flight scenario, you don't need to see patterns. You have a tunnel vision object in front of you. You don't need to see that it's similar or different to other stuff. And the last thing that goes whenever we're stressed is our ability to remember who we are, identity, identity formation, identity politics, identity affirmation. Because in a fight-flight situation for 200,000 years, our bodies were designed to physically get the hell out of here, not to talk about the why and the how and the what-ifs. Mm -hmm. And so I understand why people can't even think that there's going to be a second wave, even though, my God, yeah. I know, my 14-year-old knows that there will be a second wave of some shape, right? Yeah. Yeah, and look, and, and it's fascinating to build on that. I also think there's a byproduct of everything that you've just explained is that how leaders act in moments of crisis will be remembered. Yes, it's so sad, isn't it? Exactly. And this is where, you're like, you know, you think of BP and the CEO and I want my life back and here we are 15 years later and it's the first thing that comes to my mind because mm. it's the cult classic of, like, look at this. And... Yeah, I think it's through conversations and releasing stuff, you know, releasing conversations like this that kind of hopefully add value to, for leaders and those who are in positions of power and influence to actually stop and think and yeah. put that checking mechanism in, yeah. in you know, you know yeah. yes, it's stressful. Yes, I'm a CFO of a Fortune 500 mm. and things are going bad and that's no good, but think. Create the space to think. I think creating the space to kind of detach and look objectively the same way that you and I and Matt, yeah. were all, you know, none of us are CFOs of Fortune 500s today, but we're looking at this like, why would you do that? Yeah. But how do we get that CFO, drag them onto our side, even for five yeah. minutes? Yeah. You go, hey, look, look at this, see what you see, but look. Yeah. Find the space, the capacity. Look, I think that leads back to the process. This is yeah. where good decision-making oh, processes yes. have, uh, ha have this gap to step back like, mm -hmm. you know, go to bed, go for a jog, take, yeah. you know, just, just walk away, clear the mind, objectively kick it, objectively kick it, yeah. then come back and continue. And yeah. when I saw this Gartner research, I just kind of went, well, that blatantly isn't happening here, precisely mm -hmm. to your point. Yeah. One of the things I'd say that another reason why I think people probably aren't forecasting that second, third, fourth um, waves, because I don't think it's necessarily just, oh, there'll be a second one. I think this will be more like a tide coming in or out rather than a, a single wave that just hits and goes away. It's, you know, like you have a tsunami right now of, of people, you know, of, of things, but you don't just have one wave of the tsunami. You have lots of smaller waves that follow after it. Um, it's that they can't model what is going to happen beyond the first wave. They can't even model through the first wave. So how can you start trying to get your head around and, and, the first wave will have an impact. The second, third, fourth waves will not just have a financial impact. They will start changing society. As we go back and forth into this, it will, it will impact our beliefs about what society can and should look like at the end of this. 
at the moment people are saying, oh, you know, it's six weeks and we could bounce back and we'll come back stronger. If it's just a six-week lockdown, it's a six-week holiday from the economy, it's a six-week holiday from jobs, that doesn't change societies. Years, or, you know, potentially years of having to to live with um, this kind of approach to life, that's going to that's gonna have such a big psychological impact that it will change the way we operate as societies. It will change the way we operate as organizations. And that you can't model as a CFO. I'm already so this is the second time that I'm think I'm I'm inside my my head the word compassion is screaming because I absolutely hear what you're saying Matt just like when when Adam was saying you know they they're not thinking about the second wave um I I feel like almost saying let's give them an extra piece of compassion because it must be tough to make these decisions and now as you're saying modeling as a CFO what will happen in six months time or a year is extra difficult because There'll be like compound interest of the effect of this. And we will have mutated already. And then we will mutate differently again as the third wave will hit. And that'll be very, very difficult to anticipate what kind of consequences this will have for society. Biological, individual, interpersonal, family and community, as well as societal. So all of these things will be affected and they will be affected in different ways. And that is a mind twist to get our heads around yeah i also think there's like it's interesting how compassion is screaming in your head yeah. the word opportunity is screaming in my oh head. great Isn't and i'm like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like okay so within moments of change those you know groups societies organizations structures who are significantly more fluid so they can roll with the ambiguity and the uncertainty, the complexity and the risk as as it comes. So, again, what is my relationship with uncertainty is a capability that I see in great leaders that sets them up to make much more progressive, longer-term decisions in the face of uncertainty. And it's in times of crisis those leaders who have a better relationship with uncertainty, I find make better decisions that will help them leapfrog their competitors or get them to their teams to a better place. And I've gone on a record a couple of times in the last few weeks of saying this. I truly believe that what happens in business in the next two years will define the next 10. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the opportunity for organizations to do so much, so much good work. Use the uncertainty to your advantage. Uh, you know, repatriation of supply chains, placing ESG kind of principles at the center of your organization's purpose. Stop buying T-shirts from Chittagong where the dye that mm-hmm. colors them goes into the river. Like there's, there's a thousand things you can do. And only just yesterday... I read a report where apparently there's some business group, I can't remember in what country it was, that was beating the drums like, now is the time to pull your supply chains out of China, blah, blah, blah. It was a very politically charged paper. I went, eh, I don't particularly buy that. But I do buy an organization looking at the things that they control and using this as an opportunity to do some very impressive things. Because to your point, or to both of your points, Everything is changing and everything will change. And this is going to go on for a while. And you know, what do the organizations need to be for the new 
psychology of consumption and engagement how do we get trusted organizations how do we get ones with a stronger moral compass because you know like i'm lucky i'm an australian sitting in zone one london windows are open all i can hear is birds tweeting Uh, this is insanity however I am self-aware enough to know, well, then why can't the T-shirt manufacturer in Chittagong experience the same thing? Why shouldn't they? Yeah. And this is where, you know, kind of globalization and then nationalism and the pendulum swings back and forward, but it's always kind of got capitalism at its heart. And I think there's a new consideration, you know, beyond you know, corporate and social responsibility and all of these things, it's now coming to the fore and the organizations that grab it and celebrate what they are doing in this time of opportunity will i'm confident mm. they'll come out on top through this as long as they've got the you know the one critical factor that the, the one precursor that has to exist for anyone to even think like this as long as they've got cash flow sorted yeah mm. uh, if, if their pnl is in survival mode yeah. then they can absolutely start mm. thinking yeah like this. i find that absolutely fascinating and what i'm taking away from what you've just said is it is very, very true that for once in my life, everything is up in the air. And it has never been completely up in the air in, as long as I've been alive. Um, everything is up for redefinition. And I'm going to repeat what you've just said. It's absolutely fascinating. What we will do in the next two years will define the next 10. I believe that too. And so do you know what that calls for? That calls for more awareness of what I am doing as I am doing a, B, and C. And I'm going to plug a little bit on mindfulness science. Both of you know that I'm researching mindfulness. And so the traditional perspective on mindfulness is you practice mindfulness in order to generate the self-awareness of what is in front of you, decisions, maybe emotions, urges, or maybe even um, the meaning of things. The paradox, and, and so so the the, the metaphor that I normally use is you make space between the stimulus in front of you and the response. And I'm leaning on Viktor Frankl, mm. right, who says that between every stimulus and, and response, there's a gap. And it's your your growth and your freedom lies in your ability to see that gap. Now, the paradox with mindfulness practice, as we tend to recommend to leaders who want to change their relationship with the reality, as you've just said, Adam, is that in the moment of stress – the self-awareness that you need to practice mindfulness that generates awareness is gone. So mm. I am the least self-aware when I'm under pressure. And so my gap between the impulse urge-based decision that I want to make mm. and actually making that decision is super, super small. That means in my research and in the way I understand mindfulness science needs to go, the only way to address this reality is that I need to catch you more often. You need to invite me in to give you feedback on what you're about to do. So we need to build in processes that allow other people to catch us before we do something that we're going to regret for 10 years, more so now than ever, because many of us are super stressed right now. And and that means we can't rely on our self-awareness to have and develop the self-awareness to even mm. practice mindfulness if we're so stressed. That means we need to become more social animals. And that means I need to maybe 
share with you more about the challenges that I'm currently facing. Mm. And I need to allow you to watch me because I'm not watching the difficult things that are going on for mm. me. And, and then we're maybe developing reciprocal trust relationships by maybe me seeing something about your decisions that are important that you don't see. What do you guys think? Mm. I, I agree. It, it's interesting because I also wonder if this pause is going to allow that time for self-reflection. Um, if we look at, if we look, or, or if it's just going to increase pressure on those people in leadership to the point that um, when things can re start unfreezing, whether they're under even more pressure to then carry on and go back to the proven ways or the ways that they, they know work already. Um, you know, if we look at, if we look at the, the, the sort of the global shocks that, that I've lived through, so sort of 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, um, the tsunami in, in, you know, that hit Japan, you know, we've seen impacts on supply chains. We've seen impacts on global economies. Um, you know, after the, after the fun, you know, after the tsunami in Japan, yes, the, the motor industry in Europe was hit hard because we couldn't get components, but we didn't change our ways. After the 2008 financial crisis, did anything change? Not at all. Um, you know, all that happened was that we had austerity. We spent less on people. You know, people, I mean, yes, you know, this wage, you know, uh, wage disparity got increased. You know, a lot of social negativity increased over, over those you know, 12 years since 2008. But did we actually change anything about society, really? No. I think... The one thing I see that gives me hope that something is different this time round is that in 2008, the bankers pushed back really hard about, uh, shall we say, not giving dividends. They, they they wanted to maintain bonuses to make sure that they had the, you know, that they could keep the good people instantly already. We've already seen banks saying, we're not going to give, you know, we're not going to pay dividends um, that's going to hurt all of us that have pensions that are invested with those banks, by the way. You know, let's face it, that we own these these, these big companies and yeah. those dividends tend to go into pension pots. But we're seeing a shift already in behaviours that may indicate that they are actually using the space that they've been given to actually do a little bit of soul-searching. Yeah, and I, th I think there's, there's a double-edged sword on that. Because the organizations who have the space to do a little bit of soul searching, great. Do people get to see that soul searching? And if I look at, you know, um, in the United States and uh, some of the funds that the US government has handed out for smaller businesses and larger businesses have gone in and absolutely raped and pillaged it. Mm. And now everyone's going, oh, you know, we, you know, give the money back, company X, company Y. It's it's almost the inverse of, of what you've just said, Matt, which mm. is... You know, if you're not soul searching and, you know, and again, like, you know, I know the one organization, I'm, I'm a dear customer of Shake Shack. I think they have the best shakes on earth. And, uh, and, and here they go and they take, you know, a small business uh, grant from the government, grant or loan, I'm not too sure, but they you know, took a fistful of it. And, you know, you got mum and pop shops all across the country who are like, what the hell is going on here? Like, you know, this is a large organization. They've got stores everywhere. They employ thousands of people and, and that's fine. 
is it a survival mechanism? Then how does society see that? Like my opinion of that organization has taken a bit of a bashing and I've been their biggest fan until now. I'm like, well, what's actually going on here? So the reason why I focus on the inverse is to positively reinforce your point, Matt, which is, okay, how many organizations or people or leaders are going to take this time to soul search? Mm. But I think also the second aspect of that, particularly in relation to giving certainty or reducing or, you know, or giving people you know, uh, uh, something to lead through an uncertain time with is how do you demonstrate that? You know, you, you know, do you sit down and do a podcast and be like, I've been thinking big thoughts while I haven't been paying your wages. Um, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh, you know, how do you actually demonstrate that to then start bringing people with you, you know, staff, customers, citizens, whatever it happens to be that, I think I'm now, my brain's now starting to move the mm-hmm. conversation towards the, okay, how? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the things that people can actually do to operationalize what we've been discussing? Mm-hmm. And I think we've already talked about a number of things to to inform that and to speak to, like, so what? So the so what is we talk about process, we com- communicate more by default if we have to have a heuristic and a rule of thumb. We share a bit more. We don't necessarily share, you know, just I've been pondering. But um, we there's, there's a number of influences that we need to at least bring on our side. And I wanted to say something uh, in response to what you were saying, Matt. You know, organizations have space. And so some of them, some organizations do. The NHS doesn't have at all. Some other key workers, Tesco, other operators have no space to think at all. And so it's like a bifurcal, like, so like some people have a lot of space to think and, and some people have none whatsoever. So we're kind of divided as a society. And I wanted to remind you of the things that you both have learned at Cranfield, Johari window, the blind spots that mm-hmm. we all have. So I am incredibly, I find it incredibly hard to see what I just don't see. And so if I were to do soul searching, if I, if I am part of the, the group that actually has time to think, it's normally quite hard for me to find my blind spots. But it is very easy for you, even on this call, to see the things that I don't see. And that's why the so what about using the space and the, the, the time that we have right now to think wisely is to do it in pairs and to do it in a processed way, to do structured reflection and do it not alone. Because I always think that I am smarter than the average, although that just can't be true, statistically speaking. You know, that makes perfect sense. And particularly your point around don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Because don't do thinking, like, reflection, like, yeah, awareness like the value training of this alone. Co- yeah, it's, like, it's almost like the value of this conversation. Like yes. you know, we're tackling a pretty intense topic of uncertainty in probably the most uncertain time in our in, in our lifetimes, and at least from my perspective, in my own understanding and relationship with uncertainty, we've definitely bumped the knowledge forward because you know a, a problem shared is a problem halved, right? Mm. And and I think that. For you know, leaders in any capacity, you can, be, you can be managing a small team, you can be managing a multinational. Now is the time to create a look. Leave 
baggage at the door here is a trusted group of people. Three to five, not too big. No politics, no hierarchy. But this, this doesn't even have to be for leaders. It can be for families. It can be for all mm. sorts of groups in society to look at what's going on and basically do what we're doing, which is talk it out in a structured, rational way with kindness and with the intent to bump the knowledge forward so we can make better decisions individually and collectively because we can't ne- we're not necessarily in the luxury of making a decision on the uncontrollable right now like you know so if we focus on the controllable things even if they're minimal we can increase the authenticity increase the trust by doing it somewhat transparently somewhat robustly through a process and ultimately make the position that those leaders or those people are in better because again it's like you know the old fred rogers analogy if it's mentionable it's manageable favorite quote of a movie in the last year um and it's and it's a it's bang on and it's the things that that compound uncertainty is when things are not mentioned I was speaking with um, an organization last week and um, I had a call that backed onto a call with their chief executive. And um, this organization, unfortunately, had lost a couple of their staff to COVID. And the word had got around the organization that this had happened. And a message went out, all hands meeting the entire organization, the CEO is going to speak. So the assumption was, okay, we're going to be talking about this. Organization dials in, 12 agenda items, none of them are this topic, get to the end. By the way, um, this has happened, thanks for your time, end of call. Now, my call backed on to that all-hands meeting with this organization, and everyone that I know has piled into in, into the call, and they've just gone, what the hell has just happened? Like, they've com- this leader's completely lost control of the narrative. Now, maybe there is very legitimate reasons as to why it was not mentioned. Mm. It might have been legally sensitive, family members. Mm. But but again, but now you have lost the narrative. Everyone's internal jabber is kind of going a thousand miles an hour trying mm. to work out who it is, what's going on, what, is it in my team, blah, blah, blah. And you just, and there's there's something, there is a better way to handle sensitivity and uncertainty and again it's just lead with kindness you can say look this has happened this is horrible i can't disclose anything here is why and then you control the narrative i think if it's mentionable it's manageable but if you just mention it like oh there's you know there's a tiger on the horizon by suddenly you're going to increase the uncertainty and again the first thing that went through my head is that leaders are def- leaders are remembered how they act in times of crisis. Mm-hmm. And I heard this story and I'm just mm-hmm. like, well, that's that done. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. everyone's going to remember this. And mm-hmm. there's no and time all the to trust step back goes out of the, the window. You lose Absolutely. all the trust in one in one swoop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So so th- th- this is I think you know within within this conversation, like I've got oh, you know, a whole page of notes here. It's the thing that I think. I'm taking away and the lesson that I've learned is very much about balancing authenticity with vulnerability and its relationship with trust. I think, you know, if, if you can build a trust in this time, 
I think the two main contributors amongst other things, you know, intent and value and reciprocity and everything else, but vulnerability, not too vulnerable. I think, I think is, is something that if leaders get the opportunity to reflect on before it comes out, I believe will serve them incredibly well. And that will help people. You might necessarily be delivering certainty in, in uncertain times, but you will be empowering those who hear your message to find peace, strength, trust, drop anchor in what is really going on because there is a sufficient level of vulnerability and transparency in relation to what is really going on because no one likes being bullshitted to, particularly in times of crisis. Matt, what are you taking away, my friend? Um, yeah, so there's so much that I could fill a uh, couple of suitcases with and drag them down the road. Um, but <laughs> if I was distancing. exactly, um, but but I think that the crucial thing was something that that, that Yitta said, which was it really made me realise that you know you know our leaders are supposed to be humans too, um, and these are times of crisis, these are difficult times, and they're not necessarily going to be making the best decisions, um, even though the the big decisions that are being made are being made as groups they're taking advice some of the smaller decisions the ones that how they respond to a journalist particularly when journalists are putting them under pressure um, the very adversarial nature means that ministers that are already under pressure are not going to perform well they're going to forget things they're going to say things in ways that they didn't want to they're going to make on the spot decisions that that are just going to get them in trouble so as you say you know leaders are defined by you know how they respond in times of crisis but actually as well we we need to be careful not to not to make to to to, to escalate the crisis for people none of us know how you know the reality is is that for most of us the uncertainty um of today versus any other time in our lives is, is there's no there's no real difference i mean we none of us know if when we go to bed tonight if we wake up tomorrow morning if our partners our loved ones wake up tomorrow morning you know we could all live leave life right now and we we never know when that's going to be the case the the certainty that we believe we have over the way the world works is probably quite a fallacy many of those pieces have been taken away and i think a lot of people are grieving for those and so we look for other forms of certainty to replace those. Um, but I think we need to be kind. I, I, and I think it's, you know, you said this earlier, Adam, it's really in these times, in these, um, you know, the more uncertainty there is, it, there's just more cause for kindness, more cause for listening to people, more cause for, you know, the, taking stock of the little things because at the end of the day those are the those are the things that really matter it's the human connections um and i think we're already seeing that that other than some cases in china when lockdown's finished and sort of louis vuitton has sold out of handbags in sort of 30 seconds flat um you know we're actually uh you know we're actually spending money in very different ways on and paying attention to what really matters in life so whether toilet paper's two two ply or one ply Mm. Thank you, um, Matt. I've also taken away um, images of why the Michelin Guide is so useful to build trust and and to build goodwill. So I'm I'm going to remember that as a practical tip. 
or practical example of what people, what organizations can do to give something in order to get something else that's valuable, even though it's not tangible. Um, Adam, what you said about that, what we're doing now in the next two years will define the next decade. I think it's fascinating. I will want to put that somewhere where I can see it because that'll remind me and make me more aware of what I'm doing. And that's a way of reflecting in a structured way and be reminded of stuff that's real, but that's not always at the forefront of what I'm thinking. I also very much liked how you talked about changing my relationship with something, fear, anxiety, uncertainty. And so that to me really showed that you are separate from the anxiety. You are separate from uncertainty. And so even articulating challenges by saying, I might need to or want to change my relationship with it, you're creating a bit of distance. And that's really interesting for me. And that's really hopeful and empowering for me to see that there's a bit of a gap between me and what I'm facing. I find that really, really helpful as well. And I am continued to be fascinated by this Fred Rogers quote, what is mentionable is manageable. And it's not logical that mentioning difficulty or mentioning not knowing what's true changes something. It's psychological, right? Us psychologists kind of have a chip on our shoulder. So we say there's a psychological change that happens when I mention something, even though I am not perfect, even though it's not fully fledged, but something changes in the relationship, even between the three of us, for having done this today, <laughs> under the uncertainty that we've been feeling, <laughs> I've been feeling at least, <laughs> doing this. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank we're going to get our technology going for a, for a mm. decent recording of a three-way conversation. I think this has been really good. And the best thing is, is that there'll be more. <laughs> Encore, Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr. Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.